Are you from the state of Michigan? Or have you heard of the state of Michigan? Here at Michigan and Other Mayhem, two non-professional researchers will intrigue you with interesting stories about Michigan, murder mysteries, odd facts, and other mayhem from around the world. Two sisters-in-law will keep you... Sisters-in-law? Yeah, anyway. We'll keep you guessing about what our next subject will be as we discuss true crime, paranormal, historical, and scientific topics. Our weekly podcast will keep you entertained and possibly titillated. Jen, how are you? You know, um, last week and the first week in April, right? Yeah. And still cold, still snowing, and I'm still sick. I'm winning. You are still sick? I was sick for like a day and a half. I slept for an entire day. <laughs> I know. You know, it's like everyone that I talked to that was sick around the same time I was. Yeah. Most of them are better. There's a handful of them that it's just still holding on. Yeah. I have, and I don't, it's not, I still get my groceries delivered. Yeah. I do go and get them once in a while, but I don't get out. Right. Right. Well, I was literally the only one at work that wasn't sick at one point. Truly, everybody was sick. And I did get sick that Friday and I went to work and everybody's like, I thought you said sick people should stay home. I was like, who am I going to get sick? Literally, right. everyone of you is sick. I was the only not sick person for two days. <laughs> right? I was like, so whatever it is, you already had it. <laughs> so yeah, well, like, you know, I'm just sitting around waiting for, you know, spring. Well, right now I'm just waiting for summer. Yeah, I was gonna say, this is Michigan. Right now we're at fools, full spring. <laughs> right. True yes. story. What's going on with you? Uh, this week we had to have a little fleshy tumor removed from my doggo. Oh, and it fucked him up with that anesthesia. I think it's because he weighs a hundred pounds and he's like super anxious. I bet they gave him anesthesia and his nervous system was like no. <laughs> so they had to give him more. He was fucked up for for a full forty eight hours. Wow. Yeah, he's better now. He's better now. Well, that's good. Ready to run the streets. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> that's great. So what is your story about today? So my story is about Joyce Fisher, and she's a missing person. Okay. And I, I will have to admit that I read the story. It's short. There's not much to this. Okay. And that's actually, you know, I feel kind of bad about it. Oh, really? It's actually not why I dug into it. Okay. Was less because she's missing and more because her estranged husband mm-hmm. was charged. But I had read the Detroit News, the Sun Sentinel. Like I scoured these articles mm-hmm. trying to find more on this missing case. And I'm like, there is nothing here. And don't you hate it when you can tell they literally took word for word somebody else's article? Yes. Doesn't that just burn your ass? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sitting here thinking, like, how did you even prosecute this guy? Right. So that actually was why I started to dig into it. And it was, okay, how, how did you even charge this guy? To really, it became my focus was on, he was charged, just so you guys know, 
he overturned it on appeal. And it was the appeal that was the most interesting. Really? Right, where tell you me about it. Tell me about figure tell out me. like the prosecutor just leaves. <laughs> that's, see, that's wrong. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna tell you, you want about, me to tell you my story right now? Yeah, because I'm going to tell you about last week we talked about a guy, Danny Rays, who Rays, R-A-N-E-S, who murdered some young women along with a cohort. And the cohort is now out of jail. But Danny Rays killed more people than that. And his brother was also a serial killer. So I'll tell you about that. But you tell me first. You tell me first. Okay. Yeah. So Joyce Fisher went missing in Sister Lake, Michigan on April 16, 1978. She was age 28 at the time. She was a mother of a one-year-old child and was married, but had been estranged from her husband, Jerry Fisher, for about two years and was in the process of getting a divorce. Okay. During the estrangement, Joyce had moved to Illinois and was living with her parents. And every other week, it seemed, in the news articles, said she would drive to Michigan so Jerry could visit with their daughter. Okay. The family had told police that Joyce had told them that Jerry had previously beaten her on multiple occasions and she had feared Jerry would actually take their daughter from her. On April 16th, Joyce came to Michigan with her parents and daughter to the cottage her parents owned in Sister Lake. On this day, she planned to meet with Jerry alone to sign over a car title and drive out to get it notarized so he could sell this vehicle. Okay. She left the cottage around 3 p.m. and drove to a local antique store where they chose to to meet. Okay. And she actually went into the store and spoke to the owner, letting them know, you know, what she was doing and that she would be leaving her car there, but she'd be back shortly, about an hour, hour and a half or so. Okay. Joyce would never return. When Joyce was reported missing and her husband, Jerry, was questioned, he stated that he had picked her up. They had drove a short distance when Joyce had realized she had the wrong title. So he drove her back to her car and said that he arrived there around four o'clock and dropped her off. Okay. There There was supposedly a witness to him coming back but that witness said that he arrived he was alone okay so So some witnesses say that they saw the two of them and then other people say that he was by himself so the store owner Uh Joyce talked to the store owner yeah told them what was going on she was going to leave the car they witnessed he picked her up It was, he did actually drive back there. He was seen back around 4, 4.30 at the the antique store. Okay. But at that point, that witness says he was alone. Oh, okay. Okay. 
And so after Jerry's initial statement, you know, he lawyered up and he had nothing more to say. Okay. News reports um, report shortly after Joyce's disappearance, he relocated to Florida. I couldn't figure out when that was. Okay. And then in January 1979, he actually lost custody of their daughter after he was accused and an investigation was completed into claims he was beating his daughter. Oh, no shit. And then after eight years, he actually remarried. And and it's being told that he told his new wife and friends that Joyce had been committed to a long-term psychiatric hospital. He didn't tell people that she had went missing. No shit. Okay. See, that's highly fucking suspicious, dude. Yeah. But I want to point out here, because it's going to be important later on, Zay, he never did any admission. Like, you know, we see in other cases where, you know, they admit to doing something or they say things that would lead you to believe that they did something. He he just said she was committed. Okay. So in 19... But in 1987, in 19- what was it in 1987? Um, sure. <laughs> yes, it was. Okay, because she right. went missing in 1978. Okay. Yeah. 1979, he lost custody of his daughter. Eight years later, he got remarried. Now we're okay. where we need to be. In 1987, they decided. They were going to move forward with charging with murder. Okay. So this is where I'm like, I'm scouring. Like, there is nothing. What do you have? You have, like, no evidence here. Right. You're building a case strictly on hearsay. Yeah. Well, hearsay, and he's the most likely person, because they say that you're most likely the person that was last seen with them is the most person, like, most likely to kill them. They have uh, a contentious relationship where he's known to be physically violent with her. So, yeah, like there is no actual evidence, but there's circumstantial evidence. Like, yeah, he's known for violence. He had his child removed from his home. He was violent toward her. He was the last person seen with her. You know what I mean? She, he threatened her life previously. Things like that. One of those, he says he's going to kill you and later on you disappear or found, you know, never found again. You do. It does look suspicious. You did say you're going to kill her. You know what I mean? But yeah, but there's when no you, actual evidence. Right, but when you have a trial with the jury, you have yeah. the the prosecutor has to have presented evidence where they're with and show without a reasonable doubt that the person did it. Yeah. Murdered her. And yeah, I don't what I'm saying is he looks absolutely guilty, but you have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. But yeah, no, he's probably good for it, but you gotta do more than that <laughs> to, yeah, to so do it in the court of law. Yeah. He was found guilty of in, involuntary manslaughter yeah. and he was sentenced to seven to fifteen years at the time. But that was overturned four years later and he was released. So this is where I'm like, how'd that happen? Like, how'd you get convicted? By a jury. Yeah. How was that allowed? 
Yeah. And what they say in the appeal. So then I was looking and I pulled appeal paperwork from legal.com. The and it's L E A G L E dot com. Okay. So the Court of Appeals points out that the prosecution failed to actually respond to this appeal. This is where it's like you just abandoned ship, dude. Yeah. It took all this time. Uh, I think it was like a four-day trial. And and then the appeal comes and you just abandoned ship. Yeah, no shit. Yeah, so they don't respond to the appeal. And they say, and I quote, they're disturbed by this apparent indifference and abandonment of the case. Okay, so someone is disturbed. Yeah, the court of appeal. <laughs> they okay. chose to try, you know, the prosecutor chose to try a case with no evidence. Oh, it was in a 14-day trial. Okay. Covered by the media and was of public interest. Ultimately, this, the court of appeal state they overturned the case because of insufficient evidence to submit the case to a jury. And the court erred on in denying Jerry's Jerry a direct verdict. And so during when I was looking at the court paperwork, at the end of the trial, his lawyer asked for a direct verdict. And that's when um, they asked the judge to rule on the case because it's found there is no legal evidence for a jury to reach a conclusion. Okay. That evidence that was submitted in the case, Jerry's previous bad acts, hearsay testimony of Joyce's fear of Jerry, and other improper remarks by um, the prosecutor. The Court of Appeals notes some of these things were properly used during the case. But my take in reading the paperwork was that the prosecutor said things during his closing argument, which Uh should never have been allowed. Like, that should have stopped him. Okay. When the judge denied the request for the direct verdict... He instructed the jury on first and second degree murder and involuntary manslaughter. Even though the prosecution didn't meet their responsibility to present sufficient evidence that could justify one of these charges beyond a reasonable doubt. The Court of Appeals also pointed out that even if they went off the circumstantial evidence presented, that evidence does not show Jerry knew Joyce was dead. So you don't have to have a body, but you have to to prove without a reasonable doubt that he knows she's dead. Okay. So that's where those you know statements that these idiots make, you know, to people that they know she's dead or right. And he just pretended that she, even though there's no evidence that she um, ever went anywhere for mental health, he told everybody that she had. Right. But he never said, you know, I know she's dead or I know she's in a field. I know she's bigger. That Um, that makes sense. Okay. So 
they had presented one witness who vaguely remembered uh-huh. Terry being drunk and saying, saying that he said something like, his wife is gone. Nobody can find her. Nobody will find her. Something along those lines. Okay. Well, we know for sure all this time that his lab, she's probably dead. Right. Yeah, we just can't Um, say for sure that he killed her. Right. And then he did lie to his second wife about the circumstances, but not in any way that would be an admission he knew Joyce was dead. Okay. Did he also tell her that she was in a mental hospital? Yeah. Uh, The only thing the prosecution brought to this court case was hearsay evidence and what Jerry's motive and opportunity to kill Joyce was. You know, you have to have some element of a crime. Yeah. It could be just revenge for being left. But I thought to myself, like, you, like, abandoned it. And maybe yeah, but people do crazy he, shit for crazy fucking reasons. Like, we're using logic. <laughs> right, but I'm saying the prosecutor. Oh, yeah. The appeal. So the appeal comes, and you just abandon ship. No, and then crazy. I'm thinking to myself, you did get beat up over the, if really? you read the whole thing. Yeah. He did get beat up over his um, statements, his closing arguments. So this dude said some stuff he shouldn't have said. I wonder if that guy's still a lawyer. I have no idea. I should look. Yeah, I'm a, I am a curious Kathy when it comes to that kind of shit. You know what I mean? Yeah, I but mean, if recently I, thought- I was like looking up articles and suddenly I find myself like, yeah, searching people and shit. <laughs> yeah. I just found it really interesting. Like, you know, you, you get these you missing person cases or just a case and yeah. then they're overturned or whatnot. But yeah. this one grabbed me like, I couldn't find anything like normally you can, you know, you know why they arrested them. Yeah. But none of the articles led to anything. And then it was like, oh, well, now I got to know. And it being noted in the appeal that it was, you know, in the media. Yeah. People were interested in the case. These news news articles sucked. Like if I was back then, I'd have been calling. Like, right. what are you telling me? You're telling me nothing. Okay. It was overturned. Uh, you, that's all you said. Good. Good for you. Now, why? Yeah. No shit. That's it. They do so some, yeah, like, people do some squirrely shit. That's why it's very important to look into your judges before you vote for them. I am all, I even go <laughs> into their Facebooks to see what they have to say before I vote for them. It, very good. It takes me hours to vote, hours because I have to, hours ahead of time because. I have to look into everybody. I'm not fucking around. I'm not going right. to have the power to be a judge if I think you're an asshole. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, uh, okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about two serial killing brothers. I got my info from SerialKillsFandom.com and Michigan's UPFandom.com and also some from Wikipedia. Yeah. So in the last episode, I did talk about Danny Rains, who at 28 years old was a murderer and a rapist. And his accomplice in the three kidnappings, rapes, and murders of three teen girls was Brent Coster, and he is currently out on parole in Michigan. Their crimes took place in Kalamazoo, Michigan, on the west side of the state in 1972. So Danny had done time for assault and was released in early 1972, right before his kidnap-rape-murder spree, all right? He's actually let out something like 
March 2nd. And this is what he does March 9th, 1972. This is before he meets up with Brent. Okay. So he's, he gets out on March 2nd and yeah. a couple of days later. Okay. This, this is what happens a couple of days later, March 9th, 1972. Now, Patricia Hawk, sometimes they listed her as 28. Sometimes they listed her as 29. But she's, you know, right in there. She went to shop at a local department store with her 17-month-old son. And getting back in the car, Patricia put her son in the passenger seat because kids didn't go in the back seat back in the day. We sat up in the front with their parents. Yeah. And just had, like, regular seat belts and shit. Yeah. So she puts the baby in the passenger seat. And Danny walks up with a knife on her. And he forces her into his van where he binds her and he rapes her. He forced her into the front of the van with her hands still bound. And this is when she really starts to fight him. And she fights so hard that they actually fall out of the van and into the parking lot where he stabs her in the back. And she kept fighting. So he twists the knife and she dies from that injury. So Pamela's son managed to get out of the car and was standing nearby crying. And Danny felt that the boy would be too young to help authorities. So he kind of just left the kid there. And the baby wandered around the area until the next day. When an elderly woman, yeah, found him wearing bloody clothes. So he must have tried to go to his mom, which is the saddest fucking thing in the world. Oh, that got me. The poor baby probably crying on his mom who's dead in the parking lot. So when they searched for the baby's mom, they found her body behind the building of an elevator business. And her husband had reported her missing earlier. So they were able to connect the two. But when it was discovered that Patricia's wallet was missing, police assume it's a robbery. Like, what about the rape part? You guys didn't see that she was raped? Didn't you do an autopsy? What the fuck is wrong? But it's 1972, so things were done a little different. Yeah. Yeah, so Danny Rains, he wasn't tied to the murder and rape of Patricia Hawk until Brent Coster told the police that he had bragged about it. So that was going to be an unsolved rape murder mystery until Brent tells on him. Now, so that's four women that Danny Rains um, kidnapped, raped, and murdered. Now, Danny's younger brother, Larry, is also a serial murderer, and they didn't, com- you know, they didn't, they didn't do their murders together. They did them separately. Okay. So at age 19, May 30th, 1964, so this is even eight years before Danny's on his bullshit, Larry begins to hitchhike, and he's picked up by Gary Smock, a school teacher in Plymouth, Michigan. Larry pulls a gun on Gary and forces him into the trunk, and when Gary tried to get out of the car, Larry ties him up and shoots him twice in the back of the head. He then steals the money that Larry had on him, as well as his, his shoes and his watch, and then he leaves the car on the side of the road. The next day, the police find the abandoned Chevrolet, and they notice blood on the bumper and personal paperwork scattered around the front seat. So he has the, the officer has the car towed back to the station. And Miss Mock, at this point, had already reported her husband missing from the night before. And when the police open the trunk, they find Gary's body. And he still had some cord wrapped around his wrist, and his shoes were missing. So, and then it's also the watch, right? So 60 miles away in Elkhart, Indiana, Charles Snyder had also been murdered. Charles was a gas station attendant who'd been shot twice in the head. Fishermen stopped for gas like not long after the murder and the roadblocks were quickly put up. So Larry told the police that when he murdered Charles, he still had Gary tied up in the trunk and he goes through the, he gets waved through the, the roadblock. And after that, he decides because there's blood on the bumper that he needs to murder Gary. So looking into Gary's murder, the police canvassed the area. They did the math. Check this out. When people are like, why do we need math? To solve murders. All right. So (laughs) they did the math on when Gary last filled up his tank because an attendant does remember seeing him. 
Then they calculate how far the murder could drive based on what amount of tank is still in the gas. And they were able to find a connection to the 22 caliber bullets that were used at both scenes. So they're able to connect Gary Smock's murder and the murder of the gas attendant with the 22 bullets, right? Go math. Yeah, go math, math, solving murder. My sister, who's a math teacher, would be thrilled. Okay, so <laughs> after killing Gary, the school teacher, Larry told Arthur Booth, an acquaintance, about the murder. And Arthur called the police on him. So June 5th, 1964, police arrest Larry at Arthur's house. And I saw one report that said Larry had been wearing Gary's shoes and watch when he was arrested. But another one said that he had them in his possession. I think it's a little too fantastic that he'd be wearing the stolen items. But right. the other article said that he had him in his possession, not necessarily on his body. So at the police station, Larry confessed to Charles Snyder's murder. So that's how they're like, oh, he really did kill the guy at the gas station. Larry also confessed to the murder of two of some men. Sorry, not, not two of some men that he was not aware of their names, but he described their locations. So one victim that he described was thought to be Vernon Labine. Vernon worked at a gas station in Battle Creek, Michigan, near I-94. He had been shot in the head with a 22 caliber bullet on April 6, 1964. He was to be married the next day, which oh, is shit. fucking A. Why the fuck did you have to do that, Gary? Oh, sorry. His name isn't Gary. It's Larry. Larry. <laughs> <laughs> so Larry said each murder was initiated by his need for, to rob people for money. He needed money. He starts out as a robbery and then he murders them. The two other men that Larry, except for not one of these guys, the two other men that Larry confessed to killing were done in different states, so not Michigan. Larry said he killed a hitchhiker who kept talking about how he didn't have any money, so he didn't kill him for money. He just killed him because he was annoyed. This occurred in Death Valley, California, and the body wasn't found for two years. And the last man was a gas station attendant in Kentucky that Larry shot to death. And according to psychologists, Larry assorted gas stations with his abusive father, making them like targets for his murderous attention. And if you remember, Danny was working at a gas station with, and his friend Brent Costa was there. And that's how they kidnapped two women. Yeah. The two 18-year-old girls, two women. Yeah. So I was like, this family had a thing for gas stations. Ugh. So Danny, the older brother, died in jail this year, January 29th, 2022. He was 78 years old. Larry, the younger brother who killed all the gas station attendants, is still incarcerated at, in Michigan at age 77. And remember, everybody, Brent Coster is out there living the life of a free man. Wow. Yeah, that still just kind of burns my ass because he doesn't take responsibility. It just bothers me. Right. Yeah. So that's about the murderous brothers who live in Michigan. Hey. Well, actually, one's dead now. Never mind. <laughs> that's crazy. I know. Isn't that something? And I had not heard of them before until I saw that. No, yeah, and you know, we should have fucking come across it by now. Right, I'm shocked we haven't. Yeah, me too. Well, nothing like starting your day with a little burner. Yeah, nothing we learn about, like, assholes out there living and surviving every day. Right. <laughs> yeah. All right, Jen, I'll talk to you later. All right, bye. Bye.